Catch new episodes of Dial the Gate weekends at youtube.com slash dial the gate. And for the latest schedule, visit dialthegate.com. Welcome to episode 208 of Dial the Gate, the Stargate Oral History Project. My name is David Reed. Thank you so much for joining me. Robert C. Cooper, Stargate SG-1 executive producer, director, and writer, is back for season 7 and 8 of SG-1. Those are going to be our main uh, discussion points for this episode, uh, along with a, a few other questions that I have for him. Before we get into the thick of it, if you enjoy Stargate and you want to see more content like this on YouTube, please click that like button. It makes a difference and will continue to help the show grow. Please also consider sharing this video with a Stargate friend, and if you want to get notified about future episodes, click subscribe. And giving the bell icon a click will notify you the moment a new video drops, and you'll get my notifications of any last-minute guest changes. And clips from this live stream will be released uh, over the course of the next few days on the Dial the Gate and GateWorld.net YouTube channels. As this is a pre-recorded episode, the moderators will not be taking questions for Robert, uh, but uh, enjoy them all the same, enjoy the show all the same, and uh, we'll uh, definitely be inviting him back soon to answer more uh, fan questions. But for this uh, particular episode, we wanted to go into detail with uh, SG-1 seasons uh, 7 and 8 specifically. Uh, Here is my interview with Robert C. Cooper. Enjoy. Robert C. Cooper, executive producer, writer, and director, Stargate. Sir, I'm always honored to have you. I'm glad to have uh, you back, and uh, we have a lot more to talk about. Yeah, I'm excited. So the big news uh, since uh, we've last spoke is that the the WGA and SAG-AFTRA are in full um, strike mode. You are Canada-based, and I wanted to know how it's affecting the work up there and what your thoughts are on it before well, we get into the Stargate stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to, to talk about that, but I think there's a, another topic that might take some precedent over that. Um, I mean, uh, are we not going to talk about the fact that there's aliens? So I, yeah, I, I don't... What do you think? Do, do you do you really think we're? Do you really think it's an extraterrestrial thing, or do you think it's, uh, it's no, a, a psyop? I I think we are in the age of you can't believe anything anymore. Like I don't know what to believe, honestly. And I feel like there's a lot of stuff that is. I mean, I'm going to sound like a conspiracy theorist now, but it feels a lot like there's a bunch of distractions that are being thrown out there that are kind of taking our attention away from the more important things. It makes you wonder how much of it is designed as a distract. Timing is everything. And you're right. I'm with you. I don't, I don't know what to think. I mean, part of me, you know, is like, well, I kind of grew up expecting you know, at some point to have that be an actual revelation. But even if we did, even if they presented all this evidence and uh, short of short of um, uh, a cloned Asgard with 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 no mind 
uh, personality imprint walking out of a door through a door at a press conference. I mean, I and even then, you know, I there'd be plenty well, of people who'd be like, oh, that's not real. One of they're saying they have one of those, you know, so I don't know. Let me put it this way. If it's not true, then it's really weird that they're spending all this congressional time and energy on it. Do you, <laughs> I, you think I, it's going to go anywhere? I don't know. I really don't. I just, um, yeah. I tend to try and listen to the the people I think are smart online and and uh, and reasonable. Um, but uh, it is uh, it is drawing people's attention quite a bit. It sure is. And there is a uh, I can't ignore the it could just be the rise of technology as well. I can't ignore the the interesting phenomenon that this all of this craze really began when we started nuclear testing, you know, Um, or at least it's based on what I've seen and read. It's I don't know. I, I just don't know what to at this point, you know. I'll, I'll settle for anything <laughs> because the, you're well, right. The truth I, I mean, is I getting muddier some, and muddier. I think there are some pretty interesting, and I'm not, I'm going to call them theories, but I think they're much more than theories. I think they're really good concepts that are, that explain how we are actually built to invent stories and believe in fairy tales and, um, conspiracy theories it's just we're actually made for it and and it's part of our our literally our defense mechanism against predators you know we we are built to see things that aren't there in a way that is meant to protect us um and we've turned it into uh, a form of storytelling and, mm-hmm. and uh, i just i find I find the whole thing kind of interesting. And, and the thing is, though, sometimes the predator is real. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how do we, what do we do uh, in that situation? Uh, I have one other little piece of information before we get to the strike stuff. And I do want to get to that. This is sort of Stargate uh, related, so maybe relevant. But um, I don't think she'll mind if I mention I was having lunch with uh, Elena Hoffman uh, a couple uh... days ago. And uh, uh, this is more about how uh, my memory is starting to go. Uh, but I was going to brag to her about a, uh, a trip that I recently took. Um, I was invited to uh, tour uh, an, an, a working uh, aircraft carrier uh, by the Navy. And uh, uh, anyway, we were chatting and I pulled out my phone to show her some pictures and I was going to sort of you know, talk about it. And she's like, oh yeah, we did that already. The same and ship. Like, the same ship. And I was like, really? Now, now, in my defense, I had already left SGU at that point and I was in Toronto working on something else. Uh, but I don't know how I couldn't remember the story because uh, I'm not sure if you, you know, you or the people watching would know this, but um, yeah, it was John Lennick and David Blue and a number of the other actors from the show got to do the exact Distinguished Visitor trip that I did. Um, uh, it was unfortunately the weekend that the show, mm-hmm. the announcement came out that the show had been canceled, uh, SGU. And uh, one of the features of the trip is that 
there's no Wi-Fi or cell phone uh, coverage. And so um, the announcement came out while they were there. They didn't know when they got off the boat, their phones blew up <clears throat> with all the texts and notifications about the fact that it, you know, the show had been canceled. So unfortunately, sad ending to what would have been a very cool uh you know yeah experience. bittersweet trip and the fact of the matter is that that i i think it's crazy that uh you were on the same ship and i have yeah. i have the picture handy do you mind if i show that to everyone no go ahead okay let me let me just pull this up for everyone who's watching i mean we're pre-recorded but look at that face have you ever seen a happier man <laughs> this is a great it photo it was really cool oh man did, did you see any takeoffs and landings? Oh, yeah. No, we, I'll, I'll send you some some other uh, stuff if you like. Oh, absolutely. Some, some videos. I, I was standing maybe five feet away from the the cable that was catching the, the uh, landing planes. So. Wow. I assumed there was some kind of a Stargate connection there because it was the Carl Vinson and it was like, I think that's just the, the boat they use for I these, um, it, you know, it's also, it's also potentially just a, I mean, look, there's only 11 that's true. aircraft carriers. So there's some, and some are stationed, uh, you know, on the East coast and some are obviously off on tour. So there's only a certain number that rotate in and out of San Diego. So it's, uh, uh, not that unusual that it would be the, same one was that your first time on an aircraft carrier oh yeah yeah what'd you think do you have a, tell, it's us, incredible. tell us about it i mean it's incredible like you 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 really have to see it at all levels to believe what's going on it's uh you know it's five thousand people 4500 enlisted roughly 500 officers at any given time depending on how many squadrons are on board it's um it's a city unto itself with its own culture and and, you know, an incredibly, uh, you know, diverse uh, group of people drawn from all walks of life uh, and, and living in, in, you know, in some cases, very stressful and, and uh, difficult uh, living conditions. So how long were you there? We slept over one night. So we had a day, <sighs> day and two days. So you got the experience. Oh yeah, we met everyone. We met. Wow. Uh, I met the, the, you know, the nurses, the, the dentist. I met the barber. Uh, you know, the social worker. We had dinner with the senior uh, officers. We met the captain of the boat, and we spent some time. I don't, you know, up in the crow's nest while they were doing, uh, you know, maneuvers, uh, rehearsals, and stuff. Um, it was. Uh, it was uh, pretty amazing. How many of them were Stargate fans? Um, a couple, not as many as you might hope. Okay, it's the Navy, after all. They, That's true. They they uh, they have a bit of a a thing with the Air Force. Of course, <laughs> absolutely. A little rivalry there. I've never heard anybody. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, that was uh, that was that was a lot of fun. So. To go back to uh, to the strike, um, yeah, I mean it's a look. We're at a we're at a turning point 
in history as far as uh, the industry, as far as AI and what's going on there. We've talked a lot about that, which continues to evolve at a really frightening pace. Uh, you know, it's also that that part of it is just that's just amazing to me how much people have their heads in the sand about where it's going and how fast it's going and where where it's going to get to i mean you know the number of writers i've spoken to are like oh it'll never write better than i can and uh, uh okay okay that's what gets you through the day um yeah. uh and then you know the industry itself is uh, in a in a real transition like in any sort of industrial revolution uh, which is what we're in in terms of, of the studio system and television and films, you have a tremendous period of growth as people try to become the dominant player in the space mm-hmm. and, and vertical integration. You know, you have a bunch of oligopoly. It's an oligopoly essentially. And, and then, uh, you know, see so a bunch of oligarchs uh, so in the business they're all trying to, you know, defeat each other by growing to be the biggest as quickly as they can. And then, of course, the economics are unsustainable. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure their strategies were sound. Uh, and and now you have contraction and, mm-hmm. and you know, that's um, happening at a point where a contract negotiation is going on. And, and uh, you know, the, the trend the, for people who aren't really, there's a lot of... Um, I guess, you know, misconception that, oh, these are just, you know, wealthy actors and writers who are, you know, whining and, and, and crying. And it's, uh, it couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, the, the successful people often tend to be the face um, because they get the media attention, but they're not the ones who are, are you know, the, what the fight is about. They're, the, they're a fraction you know yeah it's 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 a real a real reflection of overall america and that the, the, they're the 1% of the actors and writers but the vast majority of of working artists within that business are are not able to make a living anymore and and it's you know and they, and again you might look at it and say how is that possible um with all the television being made but the practices <laughs> the ways in which talent is being treated by, by the companies is becoming uh, frankly, just worse and worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can read about it in detail. Uh, you know, for me, it's frustrating uh, because I've done most of my work for American studios. So I do look at the U S system as my, bread and butter for the most part. I am Canadian. I work in Canada. Um, and I can work under the Canadian guild system, but the WGA is, you know, being quite, uh, well, you know, forthful in saying, you know, trying to prevent people from breaking their picket lines and Mm -hmm. doing what would be called struck work. Um, but as I've explained to a number of people on the, you know, higher up levels of the WGA, uh, 
there's not really a whole lot of reciprocal support from the Canadian industry. Last year, apparently, there was a whole thing. I, Jenny Stiven uh, of Clio Consulting told us about this. The the the, uh, the Americans gave the Canadians very little support. Um, well, the whole BLC 11 situation with the streamers essentially are doing what to the Canadian system, what they're doing to the American system, mm-hmm. and that's filling the traditional broadcast networks. And they have been traditionally who have the, the organizations that have been forced by the Canadian government and assisted through tax credits to to order Canadian shows, to make Canadian television. So now the streamers come in, take away the viewership and the economics that support those those networks, but but don't want to participate in that same program, essentially. And when the government tried to regulate it through a bill, um, they essentially blackmailed them and threatened them until they softened that bill to the point of it essentially being ineffective. And and wow. it's beyond that. Like you could I mean I'm gonna bore people. They're here to talk about they want to hear about Stargate, but No, it's topical. But the, but the truth is, uh, you know, Canadian producers have been priced out of the game by American production. So, you know, budgets just can't match up and when you say oh why don't canadian shows you know aren't as good or look as good or whatever it's like everything across the board over the last 10 years with much bigger budget streaming shows coming to shoot in canada and taking advantage of the of the tax credits that that the government provides here are driving up costs like cost of everything cost of crews cost of locations cost of equipment um almost making it impossible to make Canadian television. And and the WGA participates in that without ever, uh, you know, looking to hire local writers, looking to, um, you know, support the local unions. The directors do get a look a little bit more. There's a, there's a recognition of the talent there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, even from the standpoint of supporting education and training, uh, bring some interns on, put them on set, like, just give people opportunities and they don't do it. Um, you know, they will send people out from the U S before they hire somebody local. So it's, um, there's absolutely no reciprocal, uh, you know, kindness from the guilds down South. Uh, but yet when, when they're on strike, they expect us to go on strike with them. Yeah. It doesn't seem without the benefit. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. Well, you know, we, there has to be reciprocity, um, or, uh, there, there's just, there's no respect for, for the work I've, I have had the privilege of, of speaking with a number of the, uh, uh, post-production people who have now been available to do more work because they're at a standstill. And one of them told me he doesn't expect uh, work to come in until at the earliest December. And that's, uh, that's a person who more than likely is going to be okay. More than likely, but the number of people behind him, it's like, this is, I mean, this is so damaging and so infuriating and, yeah, and it's damaging to like everybody, you know, up and down the line, crews yeah. who work, you know, depend on these jobs. Yeah. Um, all the support companies that service production 
you know, catering and stuff. I mean, you laugh, but that's their bread and butter. Yeah. No pun intended. Um, it's, uh, it's terrible. And, um, and, and the companies are really, you know, uh, they're behaving in such a way that it, it's clear they're just happy to have a couple of quarters of, um, lower costs for their bottom line, um, rather than, you know, taking this seriously in, in any way. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this shakes out through the rest of the year. And, and God help us if this, you know, continues to go on much longer. But um, I think it will. I mean, I think we're looking at early, early 2024 before this got settled. But I mean, I'm not a right, of course, an expert or, or a prognosticator. So, um, can you do me a favor and tell me what it was like? working with Brad Wright, all of those, um, uh, nearly, nearly two decades. Yeah. Um, your, your, your partner through much of this. Yeah. There's two things that come to mind. I mean, there's so many stories, uh, that we could tell that, you know, in terms of us going through things in the trenches together and, uh, you know, having to have each other's backs, there are a number of, there are a number of situations where, you know, Brad would just kind of leap out in front of the oncoming car in order to sort of save the day. Uh, I can tell those stories, but some of them are uh, probably not for public consumption. <laughs> um, I'll tell you that when I first, I mean, I, when I first started on the show, I've told this story before, I think, of how I flew myself out to, to Vancouver to meet with the guys and uh, I was pitching them and John was, you know, had his pad of paper and he, Ben was sitting there and not doing anything. And I knew I was kind of bombing. And then finally, I, you know, I said something that he wrote down. But um, after that, Brad took me on a tour of the whole uh, studio. Uh, and as we were walking around, um, he was kind of like, do you, you know, he just dropped, do you golf? And I, and I said, yeah, yeah, I've been golfing, you know, and I started talking about that. And I feel like in a way that was really, never mind the idea that I pitched, <laughs> that was really the, the, uh, the answer that kind of got me uh, the job because we've, we, I don't know if anyone's talked about this uh, in any of the, you know, interviews you've done, but, we would take golf trips with, with the, you know, the writers and the, you know, crew, um, uh, sometimes a couple times a year, it would be kind of our way of blowing off steam, but they were also like just ways to kind of get together and, uh, have some fun and have some drinks. And, and, you know, it was, I guess the justification for it would be called team building, but, um, but it was, yeah, that was, you know, that was him kind of driving that bus. And uh, it really, it was like amazing. Wow. Uh, the thing about creatively with Brad, I think, you know, you could boil it down to uh, this sentence. Uh, I have an image. Like he would, he would uh, come in one day in the room and be like, I have an image for this and, and a lot of his stuff would 
his writing would be around that, right? Like he would take that image of, or a thing he wanted to do and then build his story around it. And then the story was good, but it always started from this one central image or idea, you know, whether it was a ship flying into the corona of the sun or a room that turned, you know, uh, 360 degrees, a set that was like going to roll and people would have to walk on walls. Like he, <laughs> he was thinking that way. He, he was often, you know, very motivated by, by it's weird because he called himself a playwright and he liked to write two people in a room or whatever, uh, talking to each other all the time. But he also was very driven by whatever, a visual idea. Yeah, that was his hook. You yeah. Know? And you've talked about uh, thematically uh, a lot of the time is where where your thoughts would come from. Like a like you want to do a story about revenge or, you know, this, that they, they percolated right. that way. So I think the two coming together is uh, uh, is a, a good uh, is a good mix. Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah, look, obviously worked for a very long time. So would you like to work together again one day? Or would you, yeah, I mean, would you be I mean, open I, to that? Sure, sure, sure. I mean, uh, you know, we each have our own ideas and we're also both kind of at the stage of our career where, um, you know, uh, you know, we, we're looking for things that are going to uh, kind of be interesting as opposed to just working for work's sake. So mm. um, there isn't, and there isn't a whole lot of stuff uh, being, uh, being made uh in in canada so mm -hmm. i think that the relationship that you two had uh in in creating you know one of uh the tentpole staples of uh that genre cannot be underestimated the 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 work that you guys put out i mean at one point uh 120 hours of television in three years. No one does that. No one will ever do that again. Well, um, Taylor Sheridan does it. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, okay, fine. <laughs> I mean, you know, Shonda Rhimes does it. There are people who do it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't really recommend it. Uh, to be honest with you. Um, it's uh it's quite demanding and uh and maybe doesn't always result in uh you know peak quality well how you can maintain um families while doing this and certainly yeah. you know not everyone can um no i mean I, i'll speak for me my wife deserves a ton of credit so. absolutely you know and uh, fam family members who understand the sacrifices that you make because especially as writers Joseph Malati and I have had this conversation a lot your brain is you're, you're never on vacation your brain is mm -hmm. always churning the next story so it's wild you spent so much of your time making things um, believable and I'm curious I don't think I've asked you this before what was for you do you think one of the more far-fetched plot or story elements for the franchise where you, you guys were like, or you yourself was like, I think this is pushing it. 
we can do it, but we're really asking the audience to suspend their disbelief on this one. Wow. The most obvious, I mean, we've talked about these episodes. It's, it's, it's easily going to be the, you know, the hundredth and 200, (laughs) you know, the, those are jump the shark, come around, jump the shark again, you know, like it was, but those were departure episodes. I think we were, we were leaving the building as far as, uh, um, attempting believability there the uh the one i i can't remember if i if i was discussing with with you or malazzi and correct me if i did but i i I, if i look at the entire franchise you know they're they're the one that that got to me um the most was vala disappearing through the rings in deep space and then winding up safely on an Ori planet in in another galaxy. That mm-hmm. for me was the hardest to to wrap my brain around. Even at the end of uh, Beachhead, it was like you know we've we've if she made it through, you know we've can you imagine sending a better, <laughs> a more wild message to <laughs> to the enemy? And it was the the thing. There's just some stuff that you have to do um, to make the story work. You know, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what to say say to you because I look at I look at all the stuff we did as being uh, stretching. Okay, you know, like time travel is not possible faster than <laughs> than you know light travel. Not really possible. A stargate, not really possible. So you know, it's fair. I don't. I'm you know. It's really a question of, I think, does it feel earned and organic to the story, or does it feel like it was a cheat Mm. that was just kind of almost lazily used to get through a plot point that, you know, wasn't well thought out? Mm -hmm. Um, that's, That's where it, you know science fiction and part of that is we always used to you know try and try our best not to have multiple new science fiction concepts introduced in the same episode or even the same sequence so that it didn't it felt like we were at least uh spending enough time introducing that idea in a believable way in a, in a respectable way so that we talk about how it works, what the rules are. And then, you know, before we go breaking. Right. Exactly. You want to establish the rules and then you can, you can play around with, with the flexibility of that container that you've created within the, the mind of the viewer. Right. Yeah. Like if, 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 you know, we had a Stargate, we kind of spent a long time in the movie, certainly, already had introduced the concept of a wormhole and a stargate and what that was and how it worked. Um, you didn't really want to do an episode that had time travel robots and body swapping. in. That would be just too much to try and explain and, or, you know, and then by the time, you know, you did that, people would be like, what's going on? What is that? Just the body swapping feels like a cheat on top of the robot right. thing. One more before we get into into season seven. 
in your opinion, um, uh, which of the four great races is the most powerful? Or to put another way, were they to go at each other, uh, which fortunately for our galaxy never happened, as far as we can tell, uh, which of them would end up on top? Really interested to hear your your thoughts on this one because we know well, I know the Brad's. Fur, the Furlings for sure. The Furlings are number one. <laughs> uh, I mean, I I feel like that's obvious. The the ancients have have had. I mean, at least when at the time of the show had re, maybe not at the time when they kind of were back, you know, forming the alliance of the four races, but they you know ascended to a point where they had pretty godlike powers. I mean, the, the, um, mortal's not the right word. What, what, you know, uh, of this galaxy, mm. where the, the ancients of uh, the, uh, Asgard were of this galaxy, you know, the Nox were of this galaxy. So of this realm of being, whereas the ancients had, you know, ascended. So I would say they're easily the most powerful. Do you know what Brad's answer was? He doesn't care. He thinks the Knox. He thinks the Knox. Yeah, yeah. because of their uh, uh, their illusion, um, their ability to revive people from the dead uh, with with no apparent technology. Um, but I, I understand where you're coming from when you have when you have the the power to to manipulate weather and and. Uh, and make people corporeal and incorporeal that's that's pretty up there too by the by the uh in, in the final analysis of who the ancients became yeah some of them so that's wild season seven your second season with sci-fi channel um how far into season six did you know that they wanted to bring you back for another round at that point, I feel like there was a decent assumption of inevitability. <laughs> uh, we always were waiting for the actual official pickup, but we were doing so well for them at that point. I don't think there was any doubt, at, you know, that in, in that pickup that year. Jonas. Uh had been brought in for season six. Uh, Corin was, was asked uh, to play a part that uh, was, I would argue one of the tougher roles on television at the time in terms of uh, standing in for a remarkable uh, character and person in Michael Shanks. Um, I think you've you've spoken uh, that it was it you who approached Michael for season seven. Um, I mean we, yeah, I I, mean, I, I was I definitely was the one who was uh, point on the negotiations to bring him back, um, okay. and I had sort of, I believe I was, I had floated the idea. We had stayed in touch to mm -hmm. some extent, and. You know, there was, um, he'd been back for an episode in, in, uh, season six and, and that had gone well. And the, you know, the kind of relationship between Michael and, 
and RDA had seemed solid, you know, uh, during that episode, I think, and for the rest of the cast. So, I mean, the opening was there, mm. right? And, um, you know, I don't, I, I honestly don't remember specifically what I remember. I remember the whole back and forth about trying to, you know, essentially negotiate him back to the show. Um, but I think it was, there was like a check-in where I was like, you know, see how's it going. Thinking you would want to do that or not. Um, it was always look, uh, the fans obviously were very vocal and, um, it was a conversation that was constantly happening. So. Absolutely. The, um, the show opened with... That's not a knock against Corn at all, by the way. You know, he was doing a great job, and we were certainly uh, focused on trying to make um, Jonas part of the team and part of the show and, and had every intention of continuing with him. It wasn't like, in any way, there was a sense that his... It was like a he was just sort of temporarily pinch-hitting or anything like Mm-mm. that, you know? And he came back for season seven, you know, with mm-hmm. Corin had his own story idea. So yeah. the, the door was kept open for sure. Um, the uh, uh, Anubis was the big bad for this this season following um, following through. Um, and we'll get to him a, a little bit more in, in just uh, a second. Chimera was... Uh, one of my favorites because it resolved the Osiris arc. I was a huge fan of Anna Louise Plowman. Uh, and it also was a, an expansion for Sam because we had this uh, mandate from the Air Force, Air Force that as long as, you know, uh, Sam is under Jack's command, there, there can't be anything going on there. Uh, and I think you guys wisely took a, a direction that was to expand her out of work um, persona a little bit and, more. With and oh, did we did we underestimate the power of that firecracker? That we <laughs> Thoughts, reactions to that? I'm not saying we didn't have some idea that there would be some some. Uh, fan reaction let's say but um yeah but yeah i mean look i i always felt that that level of reaction was indicative of how much people love the show so i didn't you know i didn't ever really take it as a negative and we certainly weren't trying to upset people right um but it was uh interesting to watch uh (laughs) just how much uh people i mean poor uh Poor David. Um, I asked him, I said, how much heads up did your brother give you about what to expect in this regard, considering that you were, you were coming in and, and, and um, going to be essentially, essentially going in between that, that chipper group and their, those two characters. And he said, David, I had no idea. <laughs> I was like, really? Oh my god! Wow, talk about being I mean, placed in front of a train. He's such a, a likable, charming he guy. Is. Just, we thought, well, nobody's gonna 
I'm just going to dislike him. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was, it, it was, uh, I mean, maybe the fans will get mad at me for saying this, but it was kind of fun to, to, you know, mix that up a little bit. And of course. Get, get people going. I mean, sometimes you don't know how much something means to you until you see it threatened, you know? I mean, that's part of the, the, the whole thing about villains, right? Like villains, the, the more the villain threatens your hero, the more you love them and want them to win. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was, uh, I thought it was, it was great. And, and, uh, it was also nice to humanize, uh, Sam and, and, and a bit overdue that we had done, you know, storylines where there were, you know, kind of romantic interests mm-hmm. for our other characters. So. Yeah, at that point, she had uh, had gotten the nickname Black Widow because of what had happened with Martouf, what had happened with Nareem, what had happened with um, Joseph Faxon. Um, and uh, I think the, the working title for Chimera was Black Widow Carter, if I'm not mistaken. There were jokes thrown around for sure. But... <laughs> Jeez. We've talked about heroes. Um, we, we've covered it uh, covered it pretty thoroughly. I am um, uh, going to reference that people view uh, some of our earlier uh, conversations um, for yeah. that because, um, but I, I will not uh, minimize its significance to this the the season seven um, story, uh, other than to say that had you known. Uh, in advance that the show was going to continue for 10 years, would you have changed anything about that particular episode or would you in hindsight have left it as it is? No, I can't think of anything. I mean, in any given moment, you're making the best episode you can possibly make. You're not saving stuff for later or, you know, you're just really trying to do your best with that episode. And, and like we discussed when we, we, we dug into that a little deeper. Um, a lot of what I think became so great about that episode was, you know, those, that kind of on the fly science experiment where you're mixing a bunch of stuff together and essentially reacting to circumstance, mm. um, you know, the episode coming in too long and having to invent new, new characters and sequences and reshoots and over, you know, months, uh, you never know what you're going to get. And, you know, you're putting a bunch of ingredients in a blender and hoping it comes out delicious. It could have been a nothing burger. I mean, you could have stretched right. this so thin that you would have, you would have, you would have, could have been like Saul's character, Evan Bregman. He's looking at this. He's going, this is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> is, I've got nothing. Uh, where, yeah. Where's the equivalent of Neil Armstrong golfing on the moon? Yeah. So it's, it's, um, yeah, no, you're never, you're never, uh, you're never holding anything back. Mm. Um, Inauguration. Uh, is, was the White House set, was that from X2? Was that the same set? Yeah, I don't remember if it was X2 or 1 or what, which one. It was, it was an X-Men set. It was set an X-Men. That we uh, took advantage of, yeah. Okay, wow. What a, what a, a, a great... Um, utilization of really breaking uh, into 
another world really getting into Washington with that. This was, I, I think, the barrier for me because at that point we could have always assumed loosely, I mean, secretaries of defense and everything had, had appeared on the show, but this was really the one where we were establishing, okay, SG-1 is in its own reality. This could be happening in hours, but the one that we're watching is in its is in its its own reality. Um, what was it it's like getting to to watch the show go in that direction? An amazing performance by William Devane and and bringing the uh, the Kinsey character kind of into a closure uh, mm. in in lost in in inauguration in lost city that's that's a character that had been percolating for years and you you really drive that yeah, one home. We love, and look we love ronnie having him back anytime we could yeah um, played a great foil and villain um and i say villain i mean he wasn't i, I feel like in many cases he was right uh and and you know uh wasn't a uh, written arch necessarily. I mean, he, he was, he was on one side of the argument. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, getting obviously William Devane was, was pretty cool. We were all very excited when we, we landed that and, and, uh, and having the white house set and finally going there and saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to uh, show you the scale of, of, what the impact of Stargate is. I mean, yeah, you can't have had all of this going on without, uh, you know, President of the United States being materially involved. So it was time to time to go there. Absolutely, and and see that. Yeah, he was always at the other end of the red phone. He, the president, and now it's like, okay, what? Uh, let's let's see what this looks like in in Washington. And you know, the thing, yeah, and the thing about that was, I think we never wanted to do the lame version. You know, we never wanted to do like the shot of the guy from behind and just a phone and you don't see who it is and it's where is it and all that sort of stuff. We wanted to do it right. Like we wanted yeah. to actually do it the way you would in a in a Jack Ryan movie or, or you know, uh, or an expert. You know? Would you have done uh, Washington if the White House set hadn't been available? Would you have um, found another way to do it or just just create the oval? That's that's a tough set. Yeah, that's an expensive set. Round isn't easy. No. <laughs> Oval in this case, but nevertheless, uh, no. I, I we would have figured something out. Okay. Absolutely. Maybe we would have asked to use the real one. I don't know. Absolutely. Lost City with Brad yeah. Wright. We say goodbye to Don in this one as a regular. Uh, Jessica Steen comes in as Weir. Uh, we we spend some money in this episode, and Darren uh, uh, with Gate World, I, I I told him what we were going to be discussing, and he said uh, he wanted to ask about, and I, we've we've discussed this a little, but um, I wanted to take one final pass as we as we move through this season. He says Lost season ended up uh, one of the. Lost City, yeah. Yep. Lost City ended up one of the best stories the show ever told. And we know it was originally slated for a movie after season six. You guys have been percolating the movie idea. MGM as a movie, yeah. Yeah. What do you remember about these original plans to make a feature film that bridged full circle with an Atlanta show that was going to be set on Earth? Because there were script pages 
um, that had the ending with Atlantis launching into space from millions. Yeah, that, that, by the way, that was the image. That was the image that Brad walked in with. Was uh, you okay. know, let's, let's see what if the lost what if the lost city of Atlantis was a alien spaceship that would then rose up out of the ocean as our big set piece. Um, wow. And originally, like Darren mentioned, it it, it was on Earth. Right? It was not. Yes. Not in the Pegasus Galaxy. Uh, the story goes, I may have told this before. I don't quite remember. Um, but, you know, we were, Brad and I were told that, you know, Sci-Fi had wanted to order a, another, a spin-off show. And we conceived of, of, of Atlantis. We had sort of roughly filled in that thing and and an executive who was uh sort of the top of the nbc universal television channels at the time she's now actually much more important uh her name is bonnie hammer she flew up to vancouver and and came and sat in our offices for a change so that we could pitch her the concept for atlantis and uh we pitched out the lost city story because originally it was like I said going to be a um, a movie. We kind of pitched the whole thing out to her. Uh, we had kind of had some inkling that it was probably going to happen, no matter what we said. That this was maybe a bit of a formality. Um, anyway, she's she's like, oh yeah, that's great, and we said, and then and then you know, lost city would be the transition from SG one to Atlantis. And she was like, oh, no, 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 no. We're going to do both. And that was the first time we heard that. Like, we were both like, what? Like, we had talked all about essentially ending SG-1 uh, at the end of season seven. Uh, Rick had been talking about really, you know, time to move on, enough of O'Neill, that type of thing. And uh, so then all that just through us all for a loop and we had to figure out how do we do two shows at one time the conversations with rda opened about him coming back in some more limited capacity we realized that we couldn't do the show properly with him part-time and still the leader of sg1 so we figured out he would now become the leader of the base um and um and then the economics of how do we make two shows at one time and, and uh, how that was going to all work. But that all came out of that one pitch meeting with Bonnie Hammer when she said, oh, no, 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 we're going to do both. Um, and we realized our, you know, our idea was uh, out the window. But the idea became the... the yeah, it became the Lost, City. Lost City. And, and, and you know, the, the switch from Atlantis being on Earth and flying away versus being in the Pegasus galaxy was all about the, the fact that Atlantis needed to stand alone from SG one. And it felt like if they were operating without any, you know, it's like, frankly, my problem with all the MCU DCU stuff. Like if you have two superheroes on the same planet or in their case, 20 superheroes on the same planet 
how do you do a story about one without acknowledging the other one exists or even getting involved? Like, how do you do a Batman without Superman coming in and saving the day? It's like, where is the guy, you know? Um, <laughs> so, so we wanted, we really wanted Atlantis to be a fresh new adventure with, without the baggage of SG one, without going where are the ghouls and, you know, all that stuff. Um, so, and the replicators. So, mm-hmm. so wanted to start with a clean slate. And the best way to do that was to kind of start fresh in a new galaxy. Had Don already had conversations with you about his health at this point? Or was, was it more of a, a situation where it was going to be a promotion for Jack? And so uh, Hammond was going to phase out. Do you recall the sequence of that? I mean, Don Don was a gentleman. Uh, like he was just the most, he was just the loveliest guy. Um, and I think he had felt quite lucky to have had the opportunity that he did. I don't think he totally, you know, he took it amazing and, and mm. wasn't resentful at all. He was grateful for having had the chance. So absolutely, and he uh, he. He returned for Atlantis and he returned for SG one. He was and continuum. He was always yeah. in the family and and yeah. two hundred. <laughs> and no, I mean no, just to just to button your question. I mean, he really didn't make a whole deal out of his health issues. So oh, okay, okay. So he was he was a trooper. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he was never a guy looking for sympathy about things like that sort of thing. Oh no. I, and I, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to infer that he was. I, I would assume that you know he would want to keep you apprised of what was going on in his life, just as sure. just, yeah, as much sure. as any of yeah. the actors are. So yes, yeah, we 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 were aware. Okay, absolutely. Season eight, <laughs> Four, 40 episodes a year. Um, obviously, all department heads were on uh, were uh, aware of the situation that we're going to um, be doubling our workload. And there was a new opportunity here to start uh, amortizing some of these resources across two shows, which I'm well, sure presented there, its own issues and challenges. There was no choice. I mean, right. Atlantis was woefully under budgeted in the first season. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we had no choice, but to, we didn't, we, you know, obviously we, wanted Atlantis to be as good as because we saw that show as the future mm-hmm. and uh, we wanted it to be great but it it would have suffered tremendously uh, if it had frankly stood alone, alone with the budget it had. Was the expectation from NBC Universal that you were going to have the two shows running so so make it work with this budget was there um, more finagling this season over over budget in terms of balancing um the, the resources of each show and how did that change as Atlantis grew? MGM was also a part of that, you know, mix okay. uh, uh, of deciding on the budget because, because sci-fi was just the U S commissioner. They okay. were the license fee for the U S and the rest was international. So, um, you know, MGM was not deficiting very much on, on Atlantis kind of waiting to see how did and once it got made so uh 
Yeah, I mean, look, it was just we we always we were always resourceful. I guess is the mm. way to put it. As producers looking for opportunities, like the X Men set, where we would find something that you know the submarine that we used in uh, uh, the Replicator episodes. Um, just stuff would come along, and it'd be like, "Hey, how do we how do we do that?" We would do that with sets that we were building. We'd be like, "Here's a set we can use." build spend a lot of money for episodes one and two are expensive shows but then how do we turn that set around or reuse it in a different way in other episodes down the line our production designer would always uh know those were the intentions and they were always you know all of them that we worked with over the years were incredibly accommodating and, and resourceful that way um you know we had actually started to build our own visual effects company for mm. for Atlantis in-house uh, that was owning a lot of the IP that we were creating. Um, so yeah, there were a lot of ways in which we shared stuff. And the biggest one was really crew because we were, in a way, we were not just shooting two shows. We were shooting three units. And so we had multiple stages people were running around from one to the other you know a lot of golf carts zipping around the stages um you know in some cases i think i remember times when we were shooting scenes not just from two episodes but from like six episodes because we had that stage or that set and so we would cycle in different directors different cast just to try and make the schedule work i mean yeah, John Smith and John Lennick were, yeah, working miracles. Absolutely. They had Excel open every day, I bet. <laughs> the, yeah, uh, brain. the what? No, I just, it would have made my brain explode. <laughs> right, exactly. The, um, so the production team, uh, was it, was it identical for, uh, the two shows put together or were there some people siloed into each oh, no, show permanently? You'd have, your own, you'd have your own, your different, different uh, department heads for two shows. You'd have okay. one, like there was only one wardrobe department. Right. In terms of the physical space, but you had definitely had people who were assigned to a particular show. Got it. Okay. New order. I love this episode because at this point in the show, you had already done a pretty good job, very good job, of our characters make a decision. That decision has consequences for that episode, for that season, for uh, the rest of the series in some cases. For me, this one, and for many fans, was the hardest pill to swallow because we took advantage of a sentient being and we knew that that story thread was dangling out there and in this episode sam um really has to deal emotionally and physically with the consequences of that decision um tell us about new order we talked all the time on the show in the writer's room about ethical and moral dilemmas and that, and that those were the greatest moments of heightened drama, mm. you know, like 
hearkening all the way back to, um, you know, Carter deciding whether she was going to take that elevator down to, you know, save a, be with a little girl while she exploded. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so it's like, what it, we, we looked for those opportunities, you know, we looked for those things that we could really get people thinking about or talking about, or even maybe arguing about on different sides. So, um, yeah, that was a good one, but I, I, I do feel like those were the things we looked for, you know, and, and the, you know, that's a bit of a, it's a bit of a chestnut, you know, it's a bit of a thing that gets done a lot. It's always effective, but you know, the question, the age old question of, do you sacrifice the few or the one to save, to save many and how many, what's the number that throws that into, uh, right. Into balance for you as a, as a, the, the decision maker. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it's the, it's the trolley. It's the, the trolley problem. Trolley argument. Yeah. The pro- 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 where, uh, where in the process, if I remember correctly, the 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 decision to make uh, a replicator version of Sam came very late. Can you tell us about that? I don't remember exactly when or how that came about. To be honest with you, I know that um, I think there was. I think it was probably there's probably some hesitation at some point along the way to kind of repeat ourselves. Mm. And, and it was like, how's this going to be different? How's this, you know, Sam had already been at a Tokra and, and it's like, how are we going to have the enemy, you know, become Sam again? Uh, and what's different about this, this time around. So I'm sure there was probably a, we're not even going to go there thought as we, went through the process. And then I guess the opportunity, I think in that case, I know I was excited about the image, the visual, you know, uh, idea of, of just having a human replicator, one of our leads with replicator blocks on it, you know? Yeah. A clone basically. Yeah. Yeah. It was a great idea. And I love (laughs) <laughs> that he makes her so perfect that she leaves him too. <laughs> I mean, it's like, that's just, I mean, I, I'm sorry, but the irony there is like, you yeah. know, he, he made her just a little too well. And it's like, you, ex- <laughs> you create the same being for all intents and purposes and expect a different result. And not only does she, <laughs> does she walk away from you, but she also takes, you know, everything you got at, at the end of the day and, and absolutely incinerates you. I get, you know, we talked a little bit at the beginning and we've, we've obviously done whole, whole interview about with Lawrence about AI and, Mm. um, Mm. you know, I guess it's really hard for me sometimes because I'm not an expert, right? Mm. I don't, I'm not, I'm not a tech guy, not, you know, a computer programmer. I'm just a writer who reads a lot of stuff and immerses themselves and talks to a lot of people. But you're a student Uh, of humanity. but I also write stuff about this world and, you know, I've written all of the cautionary tales I can think of about <laughs> these things. So when I see 
us going down these roads and then people being skeptical mm-hmm. uh and they're like oh you're you know you know what do you know and i'm like well i don't but i, I mean i have written about it extensively <laughs> uh <laughs> So, I mean, anyway, we, we, I mean, we're certainly not the only science fiction show or show that's predicted uh, future outcomes, um, but I hope that's not one of them. And the, the, that the science fiction is going to continue to do that, be it you or someone else, you know, um, they, it is, uh, David Hewlett said, reminded me of this phrase when he was last on the show. And we were also talking about AI in that episode. It is, it is our dream phase. And uh, science fiction anticipates, but at a certain point, uh, it also can be responsible for bringing a lot about in the process as well. That just just by its existing, it's it's now in people's consciousness and people who invent and people who create. Uh, so you know, it's, some of it's a chicken and egg problem, you know. The, the I just feel like you're talking about dream state. I, I the phrase I like to bring up is cautionary tale. Uh, <laughs> why do we seem to collectively have touch the hot stove syndrome? Right? Why is it that people say don't touch that, and everybody wants to go and touch it? Like <laughs> stop it. I we have. Uh, how do I want to put this? I think there's a certain part of us that if it's, if we're too comfortable in our own circumstances, there are many examples of this. We're going to topple things over just to see what happens. Um, I think, I think it's an, an intrinsic part of, of our nature that we, as we are, would not exist in a utopia um for very long before going absolutely crazy uh i think we are conflict i think nothing fascinates us more than the things we create yeah we are we are amazingly like our kids are the greatest things ever because we created them i mean we we love our art we love what we do it's 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 like we think that's what makes us special and unique and so Creating something extraordinary like artificial general intelligence is, I think, something we couldn't resist doing. Mm-hmm. Like we're we're just so fascinated by our own ability to do that, regardless of you know, um, Oppenheimer is probably a good a good uh, example of that, where it's like, you know, the he supposedly walked the line of the moral implications and the potential negative uses of the technology, but nobody could resist. Look at what we can do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Zero Hour was uh, a whole new perspective for O'Neill. Um, there's there's an SG-1 dynamic change in season eight. Uh, and I was curious uh, what your thoughts were on uh was it ever considered potentially having a fourth team member uh rotate in and out of sg1 throughout the season or was it always just going to be the three 
and O'Neill keeping the light on. You mean, yeah, bringing someone new in, I think. As a guest. As a guest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there had been some talk, I think. Um, some names and some people who had been around in previous episodes were 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 kicked around. Um, but, uh, again, I don't mean to reduce this all to money. I mean. <laughs> okay, fair point. Fair point. There's an issue. Okay. Um, and uh, what I loved about Zero Hour, why I wanted to do that, and this is my own sort of fetishistic uh, um, obsession with the mundane. Like, I love, uh, you know, the things that keep an office ticking. Like, you know, and... <laughs> and like, being able to do the... I love Greater O'Reilly in, in MASH. Like, he's the guy who was the backbone of everything that uh-huh. worked on that base. And, and, and his job, while seemingly mundane, was what made all the other exceptional things that those people did possible. And I wanted to, to sort of explore that, you know, in, in a world in which the absolutely extreme, incredible stuff was happening. So you had Stargates and world saving. And whatever. what about the guy who was just, uh, you know, the executive assistant to the guy who's running it all. <laughs> and and putting that in perspective uh, with a guy who hated all that. <laughs> right. And, you know, like, O'Neill is the guy who wants to be out, uh, you know, carrying the gun and being the hero and saving the day. And, and he's absolutely not at all interested in being in the office. So I, so I was like, how do we... How do we address the fact that O'Neill is the anti-bureaucrat right. becoming the bureaucrat? And who is going to put up with his shenanigans? Uh, and, and frankly, or like, how do you get, like, you could just, how do you get O'Neill to show up to a meeting on time or even look at his schedule? I mean, I just, that seems so absurd to me having worked on a show with, both Richard Dean Anderson and Jack O'Neill for seven years. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was going to be incredibly entertaining to s- figure out how O'Neill gets lives in that box. Well, I I love David Kaufman as Gilmore in that episode. Uh, part of me uh, would have really enjoyed it being just and speaking of radar, uh, just a Jack and. Walter Harriman episode. I think that it could have been really effective that way because if I mean if you take a step back and look at it, you know, Walter kind of is the the through line for the um the administration of the SGC. Even Landry says the next season, you know, I like yelling at people and I can't hear. It's such a well-oiled machine. And that's right. Walter and that's that's the enlisted guys. It, it, right. True so enough. Two things. I a I thought it was interesting to have it be someone new because that would also introduce a level of discomfort for O'Neill. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. He's comfortable right. with Walter. That's true. Right. And two, I got the note when I was talking about the idea that there had to be more going on. Yeah. It couldn't be just O'Neill sharpening pencils and so <laughs> forth. So, <laughs> As much as I would have thought that would have been really fast. Oh, that would have been a great scene. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, 
so then, so then we had to sort of invent the sort of uh, undertone story of, of uh, you know, the kind of espionage kind of stuff going on. The the ulterior motive for that character who is in the episode, so. and the through line of Jack writing a letter to to Hammond, and just finishing yeah, it with yeah. never mind. But I also didn't want like I didn't want I, we didn't want to impose that on on Walter. Right. right. We didn't want Walter to be sort of spying on O'Neill. That's true. Was... Yeah, you want to. Yeah, you want to. Um, the the the, th- the threat to be uh, exterior. And I love in the end, uh, he knew all along what uh, what the, the nature of that character was. Well, he wasn't supposed right. to tell you. Yeah. Well, don't tell anyone that I knew. <laughs> oh gosh, Covenant. Um, this speaking of, speaking of prescient. Right, exactly. Um, Charles Shaughnessy, what a what a an unexpected, a great addition. It named him a character, another character in the episode, Colonel Sheffield, as as a nod. Um, the the, uh, uh, the guy does a great job of playing this kind of Elon Musk esque uh, figure who's just had enough. And you know, yeah, like he's going to expose aliens for uh, for everything that they're uh, uh, everything. He's, he's just believes in the. Tr- you create a character that just believes that the truth is more important than anything, and he goes Again, on this journey you know, of maybe not having people who oppose the position of your heroes, but who are also right. You know, like Emmett Bregman and, like I said, Kinsey to some extent, although he kind of was a bit of a jerk at times. Oh, but, yeah. But these people aren't necessarily wrong. And, uh, and I, and I mean, the dilemma of whether to keep the Stargate program a secret or not is an interesting one. There are, that's one of those ones where you can argue both sides. And, um, so I think it was, uh, it was high time we kind of really put that to the test. Yeah, and not only is it just Stargate Command, but you've also got the trust. Um, we've we've named them down. They're not now. They're not just the Rogan ID. They're separate, um, uh, and they're not going to let him expose what is their uh, considerable fortune building um, behind the like, scenes here. It's, it's literally the conspiracies that everybody is throwing around right now. Right now. Exactly right. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I love that character and I, I love that you guys got him. I, I think that he would have been, um, I always wondered what happened to him and I always thought he would have been great on destiny. Um, but it would have, I mean, you would have, it would have required, you know, bringing in Charles Shaughnessy for, for that show. Um, because I think that he would have uh, he would have been a great asset on Icarus Space. He would have had to have been out there doing something. You're not just going to get this guy to 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 hide under a rock, right? right. So, but you know, it's just the, it's the constraints of a show. So, Citizen Joe, talk about great guest stars. Uh, how... And we've talked about this a little bit before, but yeah. one, of my, one of my favorite episodes ever. Even even being a a clip show. I mean. That was like we were at the point where it's like, oh my god, we cannot possibly do another clip show. How does this? Uh, how do we do that? And 
And yet when that idea presented itself, um, it just seemed like brilliant, you know, just how do you, how do you not do that? At what point, and I'm, is it John Lennock who comes up to you and says, you know, based on everything that we're looking at here, we're going to have to um, do an episode that pulls, pulls, before we get yeah, into been, that, how does there. that, I mean, we, 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 it wasn't like one, you have to understand these, these conversations are happening all the time. Okay. 24 seven, we're looking at the ticking clock of our budget okay. and going, okay, at what point is the studio going to, going to give us a call and, and how bad is it? And, and a lot of times you also aren't a hundred percent sure, like there's a bit of a smoke and mirrors game that goes on with budgets. So you're kind of guessing at what the actual number is. Um, but yeah, you know, we had been doing it long enough that we knew we had overspent at the beginning and we needed to kind of show some savings on an episode and, um, and then it's kind of like, well, what's the draw of that episode? And, uh, for us, it was like, oh my God, we're going to, can I get Dan Castellaneta? That's absolutely like there had been already a whole backstory, obviously forever with O'Neill and, and Rick saying dope and being a Homer Simpson. I forgot to tape the Simpsons. Yeah. Did yeah. did that was Dan aware at all, or what was anyone uh, at, at Matt Groening's office aware of of uh, Stargate's love for The Simpsons, um, or was it just just coincidence? Well, Rick bought a uh, t- he bought an access to a table read of The Simpsons as a charity thing, ah. and then and then he met. I think he met Dan okay. before he came on the show because of that. So that was part of the reason we, we felt like there was a, an opening there to approach him. And then, uh, you know, and then obviously after that, Dan wrote the episode where yep. O'Neill, O'Neill is at the convention in, in, in The Simpsons. So it kind of became a whole, a whole thing. But, um, yeah, I mean... Dan was really super pumped about not being Homer Simpson. Yeah. About like playing a character and like he would he would he would not do the voice. Like he was he was I'm Dan Castellaneta and I'm playing this part. I'm not Homer Simpson. And then I remember sitting at lunch with him and and Michael and Rick one day and he just kind of slipped into it without knowing. Or, or maybe he did, I don't know. But it was just like, oh my God, I'm sitting with Homer Simpson. <laughs> and we get that uh when he's bald over crying uh uh yeah. outside outs, outside of the I think his residence or the it, it was yeah. it was great. It's like I, ah he's there. I just also love love the idea of, you know, kind of making fun of ourselves a little bit uh with this guy who is literally writing our episodes and having them trashed and rejected by <laughs> low-level sci-fi magazines. Um, I think it's a Valentine's not fans. good enough. Right, no. It's, I think it's funny, but I think I think he is uh I think I think Joe Spencer is, is a Valentine to fans because he is us, you know, in terms of 
getting a front row seat to the escapades of uh, this this team, and he feels for them like like we do. And I I don't look at him you know as anything other than a fan just like us. Never have. Mm-hmm. And I I think that it I think it really was well achieved. It's also like the old. It's it's a it's a cliche because it's true that as a writer, the first question you always get asked is, you know, where do you get your ideas? And it's like that I love the idea of being able to have fun answering that question. Do you think they just pop pop into your head as a dream? But actually, it was a magic rock you touched at a at a you know. And man, that magic rock uh, became such had such a foothold. On the rest of the franchise, I bet you didn't have any idea. No. Wow. Wow. Yeah. No. It, you, using it, using it for the rest of the show. Um, but it, we did that all the time. I mean, you've talked true. a lot about the fact that we were kind of opportunists that way. Once we created something, a piece of of technology, we would uh, often really take advantage of it. Absolutely. It's it's now been established. Uh, I. I I don't. I don't want to belabor it, but I, I'm curious. You know, you, you alluded to the, like the studio is calling. At where typically is the line drawn for when a clip show is going to be created in a season? Is it is it the studios calling saying that they need one based on this? Is it? No, it's like I said. I mean, there were there were there are always going to be layers of conversations okay. going on between us, between the the line producers on the show the production executives at the studio and then the head of the studio. And it's sort of when it gets to that, we're having a conversation with the head of the studio and he's like, yeah, so I noticed you're whatever, a million dollars over this season. And we're like, don't worry, we'll get it back. We always do. So you never set out to do one or do you? Um, Sometimes, sometimes at the beginning when you're actually going to spend a whack of dough, you're like, we're going to have to do one at some point. So it kind of hangs over you. Um, and, uh, you know, we got a, we got a little, on Lost City, I think we did get a little bit of extra money, like a little bit of a bonus bump for, for, uh, for Lost City. Um, but but yeah, I mean, we, we, we typically would earmark the first two episodes, the mid-season two-parter and the last, you know, episodes of the season as mm-hmm. being our bigger shows, more expensive ones, and then find ways to economically, um, you know, make that up in other episodes. Yeah. Yeah, we've got money for Proclamation Tale and us, you know, we're going to have to figure out how to do Antarctica. Okay, we got it. Yeah, that's, it's a... It's a big jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. So, um, threads. We've talked. We've talked about threads. Uh, bringing back Oma Dasala, uh, tying her to Anubis. I thought that that was that that was great, and that made a lot of sense. You know, Oma has kind of uh, been. We 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 knew that she was doing stuff that she shouldn't be doing. Uh, and we tied her to Daniel as well. Obviously, he's important to her story. Um, was it finally time for the Jaffa to win their freedom? Yeah. And I mean, you, you know, you talked about this. I think we mentioned it before, but, um, this was like one of the biggest 
most painful arguments I've had in the mm. studio. And, and, and one of my sort of, I think, uh, you know, failures at some, in some respects is, is the shorter version doesn't have all that in it. I mean, we had to figure out how to cut, what to cut. It was, you know, it was a big problem. And, and then, and then, then again, the, the issue with this, the studio releasing the short version on the DVDs when it was always supposed to be just for the broadcast version. Um, uh, yeah, it was just a uh, really annoying. Yeah. I I'm, I'm grateful just that... for people who don't know. I mean, just for people who don't know, uh, we cut a long version. I had conversations with sci-fi about airing that 90 minute version, but syndication, it becomes too complicated the way they sell the show around the world. They wanted a 44 minute version, which was our standard show length. So we cut a version, but I did not ever want anyone to really see that episode that way or have it be the, the legacy of that episode. Um, and so I was assured that the version would, that would go on the DVDs and that would sort of end up on uh, streaming eventually would, would be the 90 minute version. And somebody, I don't know, not really paying attention or caring was taking that short version off the shelf and we just gave, gave MGM such shit about it. They, well, sure. Um, they ended up, you know, refunding people the wow. money for the, for the DVD. Yeah. But they filled in the old, the, the DVD, they would send them the, the 90 minute version. Absolutely. Yeah. They could, they could mail. I, I did the same thing. Absolutely. Um, I would imagine for streaming, it's it's great because there's there's no compression of time. What, what broadcast versions for like international? The show is airing all the time. It, is Threads the the night the longer version of Threads intact for those? I don't think so. Ah, okay. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't really. I haven't really. I mean, it's difficult to um, check each region, but um, yeah, that's true. I I'm, I've heard, and again, I haven't validated this, but. I'd be curious to know if you know. I've heard that they're actually, in some cases, not even showing the sixteen by nine versions of the show. That they, you know, they're still four by three. Yes, in many What's cases, I I don't understand why this is so hard. Where they can't get um, the the sixteen by nine cuts available for when for the time that Stargate Command was operating online at stargatecommand.com uh season by season it was a different cut some seasons would be widescreen some seasons would be uh 4x3 and there was a connection that was not being made and in some cases I haven't checked in a while but I think most of it's smoothed out even in streaming sites like Amazon for this has been a while uh we, there were there were four by three versions instead of sixteen nine, and it's got to be someone at mgm pulling x y or z off the shelf and handing it over and it's it, it's such malpractice as far as i'm concerned it's like this is this is not that hard you know yeah. it just requires someone to be paying attention you yeah. know yeah. so it, what what are you gonna do? You know, um, there's there's only so much. We, we like you said, give them shit. The so, first the first what several seasons of SG One were shot on thirty five millimeter film. Yep. 
Exactly right. Yeah. And Super 16, which I which I didn't know yeah. about until recently, yeah. having the conversations with the, the guys about having to add grain to visual effects in order to to make the make the scenes flow consistently. There's a mm. lot of behind the scenes trickery that occurred oh, throughout yeah. that show. Just a process of making making TV. Mobius. I, you know, I was expecting at the end of season eight, uh, I was not expecting Mobius because the end of season seven had been Lost City. You know, it was this big thing. And in season eight, really, the Lost City is is reckoning and and threads, you know, and Mobius was an opportunity to do something a little bit lighter. And in hindsight, as as I've gone in down you know the timeline here in seeing it i've appreciated it more but i wasn't expecting it then to have kind of a of a coda after the um the team has all gone fishing um to take it back to to sgc and do this but it was also a great way to tie uh sg1 and atlantis together by getting atlantis what it needed most which was power and plugging that in so to speak with this two-part uh story of making sg1 a part of uh the uprising in egypt and that was yeah. cool i'm sure you've uh, talked to joe and, mm-hmm. and, and paul about this too but i mean we had just long a long meeting at one point about are we really gonna do another time travel story to- <laughs> <laughs> like paul would be like this he'd be like Ugh. oh gosh <laughs> Not wanting to engage. <laughs> we had a uh, a conversation, he and I, and it was very much back to uh, continuity. And he said that he was the time traveler stickler in the room, the time travel stickler in the room for internal consistency. And where it would get to the point where you guys would be writing these things out and would turn to Paul and go, are you okay with that? Is that acceptable to you? Well, it was, I was, it was, it was not really verbal. It would be like, is Paul still in the room? Like, had, he, <laughs> had he walked out? Like if he had walked out, we, knew we, were, you know, we were in trouble. Um, like the things that, that nobody really wanted to do time travel. Uh, and, no. and the things that that entice you or or convince you to do it are the is the fun you get out of alternate reality situations, right? Um, I say alternate reality; it's obviously time travel, but time travel gives you all the results. Reality. Yeah, and it's yeah. your characters. It's not another universe where we don't care about these char- potentially don't care right. about these characters as much. And we've had that right. co- that talk. Right. So, so seeing, you know, the team having gone some different ways and, you know, uh, having to get the band back together and all that sort of stuff. Um, that was the fun that we were like, that makes it worth it. Absolutely. Yeah. It, and it was a, it was a great, uh, I, I love the ending nod to the treehouse of horror um close enough and that caused such a, a debate in fandom because fans are like 
if that's changed, what else uh, of the continuity has changed? And Joe was very vocal at the time of saying, everything's the same. It's fine. It's a gag. Go watch The Simpsons Treehouse of Horror with the lizard tongues. Yeah, yeah. You know, at least we didn't give that to SG-1. That would have been a little too yeah. on the nose. Well, I'm too expensive. We couldn't have really afforded to do that. On a, yeah. On and the, so it's, um, it, I always felt, uh, it, it, you can ask Darren this. Uh, I always felt that the, sh- the, the show that SG-1 uh, should end with the team fishing. Um, it's kind of like that that through line that started with uh, with season three with O'Neill trying to get Sam to to go fishing, and uh, in many respects that is the case because season nine Stargate Command was was its its own um, had had its own identity and there was something very poignant about buttoning up the show with this family just going and. Uh, being with each other and and even you know when they're not running and gunning down gould halls escaping replicators they they choose to be with one another yeah yeah that was yeah, for sure. i loved it uh robert this has been uh uh fantastic uh always a pleasure as always and um i i really appreciate you taking the time and thank you for uh the insight into uh, the strike and and what's going on up there and uh, man, we're we're just we're gonna get through this. So. Yeah, well, hopefully, <laughs> well, it's just a question of when. So, yeah. thank you for taking this journey with me, sir. All right, well, and thanks for to everyone out there still, uh, you know, interested in following Stargate and watching the show. And uh, you guys have uh, made our lives great. So, absolutely. Executive producer, writer, director, Robert C. Cooper. Always a wonderful treat to have him on. We get to go into detail about uh, the facets of a lot of these uh, particular stories that have been written and (laughs) discussing situations where, you know, they're more relevant than ever. For instance, covenants with aliens and everything else that's going on. Always a pleasure to have him on. And much thanks to my moderating team for, for making the show uh, continually possible. Tracy, Summer, Jeremy, Anthony, and uh, Reese. you make the show continue to happen behind the scenes. I could not do it uh, without your help. Linda Gategabber-Fury, my producer, uh, for helping me uh, uh, bring these shows to, together week after week uh, with new guests and uh, just... She's just an asset. Uh, big thanks to Frederick Marcoux at Concepts Web for keeping DialTheGate.com uh, up and running. We've got uh, a number of new interviews uh, heading your way. Uh, keep it on DialTheGate.com for uh, the latest details on uh, scheduling and uh, who you're going to be uh, uh, seeing and what topics we're going to have. My name is David Reed for Dial the Gate, and we'll see you on the other side. Dial the Gate is hosted and executive produced by David Reed. The producer is Darren Sumner, co-produced by Linda Fury. The composer is Neil Acree. Animations by Bryce Ors. The production assistant is Jennifer Kirby. Moderators include Summer Roy, Keith Homel, Tracy Noller, Jeremy Heiner, Reese M., and Anthony Rowling. Logo design by Deborah J. Bell. Additional effects by Thomas Tots, with contributions by model makers Chris Baker, Stephen Barr, Kevin Zabo, and Tom Paris. 
The archivists are Linda Fury, Zachary Adams, and Fred Eric Marcoux. For general inquiries for submissions, please contact us at dialthegateshow at gmail.com. Visit our website for the upcoming schedule, as well as an archive of our past episodes, at dialthegate.com. <laughs>